Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. I'm your host today, Bill Bannum, and in this episode, we're going to chat with the amazing, awesome, wonderful Risha Grant, a DNI consultant of 20 plus years, speaker, and author of the book of the book. That's BS. How Bias Synapse Disrupts Inclusive Cultures and the Power to Attract Diverse Markets. Listen as we discuss how to move towards more inclusive work environments and the role of HR leaders in making it happen. Risha is a self-described small-town girl, ex-preacher's wife, bisexual, and African-American. The cards of predictive jeers couldn't be stacked any higher against her, yet having been reared in the most conservative state in the US, Oklahoma, where not one single county voted for Barack Obama in 2008, she's learned to recognize her own BS, which stands for bias synapsis. Now, she helps others to understand and acknowledge their own BS. Risha, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to do this. So let's get into it. Beyond my wee introduction there, please tell our listeners a bit more about yourself, your career background, and, and what you get up to these days. Well, I spent the first half of my life uh, playing basketball, played Division One at Kansas State University, and um, so my life is kind of split up into pre-basketball and or post, pre-basketball and post-basketball. So um, second half of my life has been all about my business. And so as you said, I've been at this really about 25 years now. Uh, here in Oklahoma, and it's where I cut my teeth on the whole concept of diversity, inclusion, and unconscious bias, because we really are, and not only this, more specifically, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is getting a lot of publicity across the world, because we're coming up on the 100 years of the Tulsa Race Massacre, so uh, it's really a, it's a great city, but it is a very divided city, and definitely one where diversity and inclusion and unconscious bias plays uh, a big part in a lot of what we talk about now from city government uh, down to our, our companies and organizations. We'll be right back after this message from Espresso. The workplace is now more than just work. It's the place where people find community, and a sense of belonging to a bigger vision and mission. That's why Espresso built the first culture benefits platform designed to make heroes out of HR teams while connecting people and community. Espresso.com is total well-being, community, recognition, and culture benefits reimagined. Looking for more ways for your people to connect while positively impacting your bottom line? Visit Espresso.com. That's E-S-P-R-E-S-A.com. Now then, let's get into the the hard-hitting questions today, Risha. Uh, firstly, in terms of positive changes to DNI in the workplace, what, what have you seen change over the last twenty years? What what are some of the big efforts that uh, are still to be made as well? Well, what changed is the acknowledgement of it. That's what I think is the biggest thing. Like when I started this twenty years ago, I couldn't sell anybody on the concept of diversity and inclusion and why it mattered. Now, I think I was probably going about it the wrong way in the, from the simple perspective that 
I believe that it's something that we should care about. Treating people with common decency and respect, I think, goes a long way in business. But I was really young. I started my company at 21 years of age. So once I decided that, hey, these are companies and they need to understand the bottom line and what the bottom line looks like, I was able to I was able to uh, turn it around and actually focus on the business case for diversity and inclusion, which was extremely important to uh, to businesses. So what changes the acknowledgement? Now it's a buzzword. Everywhere you go, people are talking about diversity, inclusion, unconscious bias. Before that, it, there was nothing. And I think you also have to look at how the world is changing. For the first time, we have more, we have five different age groups were in the workforce at the same time. First time that's ever happened. So with all of these changes and the way the demographics are constantly changing, we have to care about these things. Our companies have to look like the communities that they serve. They have to be global because of technology. So the same way that we've been doing business, we can't continue to be, do business and be successful in that. Okay. And I believe you, you asked much. me another question there. Okay. I couldn't remember the last question there, but, uh, you don't mind repeating it? Yeah, I, I was wondering what what are, what are the, some of the the big efforts that are, that are still to be made in terms of changing DNI in the workplace? That real action, you know, because it's one thing to acknowledge it, but a lot of a lot of companies are just checking a box. They're just saying, okay, we had DNI training, um, we brought this person in, but nothing. There's no sustainable effort after that. So people are kind of energized, they they have a great speaker on the topic, and then nothing happens. And they walk away still feeling as if uh, they're isolated, they're not respected, they're discriminated against, and there's no, there, there's nothing there for them to, or no one there for them to be able to, um, to create an allyship with. Or, you know, maybe HR it's just not, I mean, they're bogged down with so many things, you know, until there's a lawsuit or there's something that you can't ignore. Um, that's when people get active and you can't, diversity and inclusion is not something that you need to be reactive with. It's something that you have to be proactive with. So you need to take steps toward making sure that your employees are in a place where they feel as if they belong and that there's no one else in that place that is impeding upon their ability to belong and be a part of the team. Okay, thank you. We're going to we're going to delve a bit more into uh ways that HR can and should be uh addressing DNI in the workplace uh, shortly, but uh before we get into that then, what what are some of your biggest tips, what your your key bits of advice when you when you speak in, in in front of some of these amazing audiences uh when it comes to folk who are out there um struggling, what what are the, what, what are your key bits of advice for people dealing with discrimination in the workplace? For the people, I would say, you know, make sure that first and foremost that that's what it is. Um, there are a lot of times, and not to discount it at all, because that's my other piece of advice, is you cannot discount anyone's experience. But for those having the experience, discrimination is such a loaded word. Prejudice, bias, uh, any of the isms, racism, sexism, you know, classism, ageism, those are all really heavily loaded words. So when you put them out there, 
you, number one, know what that is. And once you know what that is and once you're comfortable in saying this is exactly what is happening to me, then it's time to go to HR. It's time to start um, keeping a paper trail of what's going on and how you are being treated in that work environment. And then taking that to HR and having that discussion with HR to figure out what the best route is for you. Because I think people feel so isolated when they're discriminated against, they don't feel like HR is going to help. That's why you really have a lot of these ERGs is because people need to be able to, they need to be able to voice what's going on with them in a place that's safe for them to do so. And then actually have that validated because a lot of times we discount people's experiences because they're not our own. And just because it didn't happen to you doesn't mean it didn't happen. And so acknowledging that, that this is an experience and then trying to help that person figure out what's going on goes a long way. But overall, I think companies absolutely have to work toward creating a culture of inclusion, a culture where their employees feel comfortable saying, hey, that's not right. What you just said, what you just did, that's not okay. And, and honestly, there aren't a lot of companies out there that allow you to do that and allow you the comfort in your job of knowing that it's okay to let someone know that, you, that they, they have treated you badly, especially if that person is a manager, supervisor, or in leadership in some kind of way. I completely agree. And you just mentioned a moment ago uh, ERGs. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear from you then. Uh, uh, what, what, what are the roles of, of ERGs? And that's um, for those listening out there who are not quite familiar, uh, employee resource groups and, and diversity councils as well. And what, what, what are their roles when it comes to creating in, inclusive, happy workplaces? I think that's exactly their role is to help in creating inclusive workplaces. Um, but their role is also to be an alliance, a group of an alliance for other people in, within that group. So the one thing that I think you really have to watch out with uh, regarding employee resource groups is that they don't become exclusive. Because literally if you have, um, say you have a group that is African-American or excuse me, maybe it's Latinx or what have you, if you never, if those groups never get together, then you've created a culture of exclusion. So, for instance, you end up during Black History Month with watching some Black history program. During Hispanic Month, you know, you may have something that is whittled down to enjoying a cultural food, you know, something like a Taco Tuesday. LGBT Month, you know, you may have this, but, but that does not create a culture of inclusion. That just keeps everybody in their own groups. So it's important to have the groups, but it's important that the groups also are meeting with each other so that we can figure out, okay, here are the systemic issues that we feel like we're facing. Here's what this group is facing and this group. And I even encourage white males to have a group, even though people say, well, they already have one. You know, their group is, is all leadership. But if they are committed to, and they're so important to establishing cultures of inclusion, so if they are committed to, as a group, looking at what other ERGs are feeling, uh, maybe feeling that their issues are, you can actually begin to create that culture of inclusion. Because you begin to take away those levels, the levels of 
you know, uh, here's, here's upper management, here's managers, here's supervisors, then here are entry-level employees or however that goes. Within these groups, titles aren't important because they're supposed to be about the better good for this whole group. So I actually think they can be amazing in cutting down systemic issues if they are designed for that. So it has to be around inclusion. Otherwise, you just have groups meeting and and uh, dealing with things in a silo, and that won't get you any closer to the goal of fixing it. Thank you very much. Now, in your book, you say one needs to stay conscious about your unconscious biases, do the work to figure out your bias and give it the top priority it deserves. Can, can you shed some light on some on unconscious biases in the workplace? Yeah, people still feel as though they don't have unconscious bias. Now, I think it's become more of a, a buzzword in corporations than it has in my whole career. But if people are being honest, um, they'll tell you, I don't really, I love everybody, don't have an issue with people based on race and so on and so forth. But what people don't realize or recognize is that unconscious bias is an unrecognizable part of our upbringing. It, it's because we live through the past pains and experience of, of the people that raised us, the people that we love most in the world, because something has happened to them. In my case, it was my grandmother. If you can even imagine what being born in 1923 in Oklahoma as a black woman meant for her, she went through a lot of things that were hurtful. So anything she could do to make sure that her kids and her grandkids didn't have those same experiences, she was going to do that. And it was not in it wasn't in a in a way that created um, where it was it was uh, done in malice or done to speak negatively toward another group of people. It was just that I'm not going to allow my my kids and grandkids to go through these same things. So for me, it was well. You need to um, this summer instead of being outside playing. We're going to learn how to read, write, and count, even though I was about to start school. And so it's, I want to learn those things at school. Well, they may not teach you the way they teach the other kids. Or if I go in the store and buy penny candy, well, where's your sack and your receipt? They may think you stole that. So all of a sudden, as you have these, these, different, um, these different issues, you cre it creates a distrust with an, a, a total group of people that you've never even had an issue with. So... In my case, I had a mistrust of white people because the way that that I learned about who they were was from an was from fear. It was from someone who had been through a lot of things, and even though I never heard her say anything negative about a white person in in a, her quest to make sure that I had the best life possible, she made me aware of things that I had not experienced yet. So by the time I got to the age where it mattered. You know, and you do have a disagreement, say, with a white person. Well, all of these things come back that have been unconsciously been a part of, of your upbringing. So we have to be able to break those, those biases down. And we do that first by identifying what they are. I take, I take my audiences through, through this, uh, this, pro this program to, or this, this speech to help them identify what are your biases. How do your biases show up in your behavior? 
you know, and, and I do this exercise where I ask them to imagine they're on an airplane. They've announced the flight is completely full and that middle seat is next to you is open. Who don't you want to sit there? You know, and as the people come down the aisle, is it, a, is it the obese person? Is it the person wearing a hijab or a turban? Is it the person with facial tattoos, dyed hair, and piercings everywhere? You know, and what you start to learn after you've been doing this as long as I do is people don't like anybody. They've got a problem with every person you mention, somebody in the room. They don't want a person with kids sitting next to them. They don't want the guy in the suit sitting next to them. They don't, they don't want anybody sitting next to them. And so I'm able to point out we have a problem with everybody. There are no perfect people. But if you will open up your mind enough to say, you know what, I'm on this flight with this person. I'm going to sit next to him for the next three hours. I feel a little bit uncomfortable. In order to break that comfort, I, let, me start, let me strike up a conversation. I've done that in so many instances and just meet the coolest people in the world because I just said, hello, what brings you to this state, city, or country? And you have the best, and it breaks down those barriers and you realize that this person has the same, you know, wants, needs, and, and cares that you have for the most part. Now, I'm not saying you don't run into anybody, you know, somebody at some point that's, that's out there, but at least you've gotten to know them enough to know why you're uncomfortable and it does not have to do with some outward appearance. That in most cases, a lot of people don't control like their skin color. So we have to begin to identify it, then own those biases and then confront those biases. And confronting them means just that, talking to that person next to you on the plane that makes you a little uncomfortable. Learning that they're as normal as you are. Just because they wanna, you know, throw a piercing through the middle of their forehead or tattoo something crazy on their forehead, you know, whether we think that makes sense or not, it, it has, it's really not our business. But in talking to them, and I always tell people, man, if I see somebody with a tattoo on their face sitting next to me, I guarantee it's going to be the best conversation I've had in a long time. Because <laughs> you have to, it, it, it takes somebody a little different to put a tattoo right across their forehead, you know? <laughs> so it's always an interesting conversation. So we've got to open ourselves up to being, you know, being honest about the fact that, you know, what, I feel a little uncomfortable around this person. You may not even know why you feel like that. But once you begin to do the work, you'll see, man, well, maybe my mom said this or my dad or my grandmother or my teacher or somebody that just kind of it was kind of an unrecognizable part of your upbringing. And that's how I like to define unconscious bias. Okay, so I've got to put my hands up here. And as much as I love kids, I love kids. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I am that guy that uh, if there's a seat uh, empty next to me and I know it's a long haul flight and it's it's a parent approaching me with a young kid, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, me, please don't sit next to me because that kid could be crying for hours. And I'm trying to watch my episodes of Trader Park Boys. Uh, Canadians listening to the show will know what I'm talking about. Um, so I have, to, I have to admit I am that person. But you do mention something else there that I just want to pull you up on, okay? Um, I like uh -huh. to think that we're, we're, we're both probably pretty nice people. Um, uh -huh. if, I saw, if, if I see someone coming towards me and the, that tattoo on their face, on their forehead, is a Nazi SWAT sticker. Am I not allowed mm -hmm. to make certain prejudgments about that person? Am I not allowed to say to myself, I'm probably not going to like this person because I, I'm probably very opposed to their views? 
what, what's what, what's reasonable? Yeah. Are, are they are they reasonable biases to have? I'm not. Yeah, I there are reasonable biases. I, there's no doubt about that. I have a um, quick story. I met a guy that had six 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 tatted on his forehead, or, you know, his entire forehead. And as open as I am, I thought, no way, you know, this is satanic. This is crazy. I don't want to talk to this guy. Um, but I'm having the conver- I'm having a conversation with him anyway, and totally one of the sweetest guys I'd ever met. So when that day that I met him, our local newspaper had an article about a tattoo parlor that was removing gang-related racist tattoos for free. It's kind of something they do every year. And I really went back and forth as to whether or not I should tell him. My bias said, oh, he doesn't read the paper. He didn't watch the news. He should know. I should tell him, I mean. So I, I tell him the guy laughs at me and expresses to me that I was the fifth person that had told him about it that day. But he began to share with me that 666 was not satanic. It was a gang called the Rolling Sixes that he had grown up in. And he said, I've done so much bad to so many people. I've gone to jail. This gang was my family. He said, but I live my life so differently. Because this guy is talking to me about parent-teacher conferences at school that he attends. And he said, people in gangs know what this means. They see me living differently, and I've led hundreds of people out of gangs. So, yeah, we can make judgments, but we also have to be open to saying, is there anything about the way that I'm thinking that could be wrong? And maybe there is a swastika on his head, and maybe we do prejudge that. And on the, um, and maybe that guy is racist and, and um, everything else. But at least then you know it because maybe he had it on his head a long time ago and has not had it removed and doesn't feel like that anymore and has been able to change people's lives. So, yeah, we can make the judgment. Just be open to, to, um, to, to the fact that maybe you have it wrong. In, in terms of the role of HR, how should human resource departments help when cases of discrimination that are that are brought to them. Talk to me about the the right and wrong ways to address discrimination in the workplace and what processes should be in place already, um, what that conversation looks like. You you mentioned at the top of this interview today that not all cases of of discrimination are are actually cases of discrimination. You've got to to whittle through those. Maybe sometimes it's just one person's got a gripe against another employee. Talk, Talk to me about how HR needs to do it in the right ways. I think the one thing they can't do um, to really hone in on it more is discount someone's experience because that unravels a whole ball of extra issues that have happened. HR's job is to listen to the employees. They are there. Literally, they are the only link that the employee has to right any wrongs. And I can't tell you how many times I have talked to people. I've spoken to over 20,000 people. People in just the last couple of years. And I can't tell you how many of those people come to me and say, I've gone to HR. I have followed every policy rule that we have to deal with this and nothing has been done. I just wanna leave this company. People don't leave companies, they leave managers, they leave other people, they leave bosses. They don't, they don't really leave companies. So HR is that line of defense. So when you go into HR, first and foremost, they should be willing to listen and hear out what you're saying, and then to help develop a plan to see what's actually going on. 
you know, but I think a lot of cultures are not, um, they're not set up that way because people don't have the, they don't have what they need from HR in order to say my supervisor is being discriminatory toward me. They just don't, they just don't have the, uh, what they need in place. And a lot of people, you know, as miserable as they are, I just read a stat that 53% of people, and this was here in the U.S., but 53% of people are unhappy at work, yet they're there until they can find something else. And they're unhappy because of their managers and because of the people that they have to work with. We have to treat people in the way that they want to be treated, not the way you want to be treated, but the way they want to be treated. And I think that it's just getting, being able to do what it takes to find out what's really going on. What does that look like? What kind of plan can we put in place to make sure that our employees know that we are here to help them solve these problems? And so I think the first thing is listening. The second thing is not discounting the experience. And then the third thing is actually putting some type of plan in place that helps that person to figure out or to work with them to figure out what's really going on and how do we get to the bottom of it and then how do we actually fix that. So you have to have really a, an engaged leadership um, in order to get there. Let's offer some tips there for leaders in HR in terms of how companies can leverage diversity as a competitive advantage. Diversity is your competitive advantage because everybody that you bring to the table, they grew up differently. They may look differently. Because of those experiences, they have different ways of thinking. And your competitive advantage lies in people being able to come up with new and better ways to solve problems, to create products, to promote your services. All of those things are going to come from the differences that we all have in how we think and just in who we are. I mean, having that person of color around the table may introduce you to a market share that you weren't thinking about. Here in the U.S., $14 trillion in diverse communities for disposable income. That's after bills are paid that diverse communities have to spend on products and services. Yet 60% of marketing managers still don't market to these groups. So having that person around the table, that's your competitive advantage. LGBT plus over, over uh, what is it? What is it? A, a trillion dollars just in that community alone in disposable income. So you absolutely have to look at when you bring people in first and being transparent about what it is you need from that person and how they can bring that competitive edge because otherwise you're going, you may have a miscommunication. Let me be clear, just because someone is a person of color, they may not be plugged into that, that group, that diverse group. So if you think to yourself, oh, wow, I have, a, uh, I have an Asian person here. We're going to go after the Asian market. They may not be plugged into the Asian group, and they will be able to tell you, I'm not going to, you know, I can serve, serve in this way, but I won't be helpful in this way. So I think communication is first and foremost, but your competitive advantage in your employees is your diversity, and everybody is diverse. I don't care who you are. But understanding what it is that you want to accomplish with, within your company and what those goals are and then finding the people 
that can help you reach those goals, I think that lies in, in diversity of people and their backgrounds and their way of thinking and how they approach problem solving. That's what you're looking for. Awesome. Thank you. One last question for you for today, Risha, and that's um, how can our listeners learn more about you? Um, have you got any upcoming talks? You said you've spoken to or spoken in front of 20,000 people in the last couple of years. That's amazing. Have you got any other talks coming up um, in the next few months? And also, how can they get a copy of your book? That's BS. They can get my book either on my website and also learn more about me there. That is uh, RishaGrant.com, R-I-S-H-A grant.com so you can order the book there and also on Amazon it's available uh, as far as speaking engagements gosh we finished last year what 48 speaking engagements and we're on track to probably do more than that this year uh, over the next few weeks I'll be in San Diego Kansas City um, California Texas uh, Michigan uh, Alabama. So I, uh, I'll i be quite a few places uh, working on my next book called Radical Acceptance, The Willingness to Lose Everything to Gain Yourself. Um, and so I'm really excited about that. But yeah, and then social media, Risha Grant, um, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. Uh, I'm really, I really, really engaged with my audiences on Facebook. So uh, they're, I'm easy to find. And LinkedIn too. Uh, listeners, uh, Risha and I got to this interview today because um, I popped a, a little note saying, uh, hello, I'm Bill. I'm with the HR Gazette and HR Chat Show. Would you be interested in talking to a bozo like me? And she was very kind to respond in, in, in a pretty quick in a quick way. And uh, so I, I do appreciate that. So I guess LinkedIn's another way that folk can get in contact with you as well. Yep, that's it. Well, that just leaves me to say for today, Risha, thank you so much for being a guest on this episode of the HR Chat Show. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners, as always, until next time, happy working. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette. 